0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 324, and on today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Michael Senior, about his recent book, Field Marshal, the Earl of Cavern, Soldier and Foxhunter, about the life and career of Field Marshal Lord Cavern. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Michael spoke to me from his home in England. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. To set the stage, could you provide a brief introduction to yourself and your new book, which is titled Field Marshal, the Earl of Cavern, Soldier and Foxhunter. What drove you to delve into the life and legacy of this intriguing figure? Uh,
1: Well, uh, to personal points, then I I was born and brought up in uh, Yorkshire. And uh, after university, I went into industry for 40 years, uh, mainly paper and packaging, which I uh, actually enjoyed. And I've always been interested in history. uh, And since my retirement, I've spent about half my time researching and writing about the first world war which i find endlessly fascinating um i especially like the research bits because you can go for days in the archives finding not much and then suddenly you have a eureka moment and and that makes it all worthwhile so i enjoy that um well you ask about why why a book about um the first world war general lord cavern well um, firstly um uh, no one i written a bi- biography of Cavan. So that was a challenge. Uh, and it, it was also something of a mystery because, um, Cavan, uh, became chief of imperial general staff and a field marshal. Why didn't people write about him? It was interesting. Moreover, during, um, the first world war, he rose from being effectively a colonel in, uh, 1914 to be a general in command of an army in 1918. His progress was absolutely meteoric and really unmatched so there's clearly uh, seemed to me a story to tell I, I then discovered that Cavern had left letters and memoirs so there was material to explore um, also Cavern has two living grandchildren uh, and after I contacted them they became very supportive of the project and, and indeed I owe them a great deal uh, and, and that was a great incentive to get on with, uh, with the biography. It, it took me about Three and a half years to complete.
0: Now I wonder whether we could sort of step back in time a bit. Um, and this isn't on the the questions I sent you, but I've just thought it might be useful. Could you tell us about Cavan's early life and his connection to the area of Cavan and where is Cavan?
1: Well, uh, I've never been to Cavan. I've got to confess, but it's it's more or less I think in the centre north of Ireland. Um, Cavan Cavan has. Um, ancestors um, going back to the 1600s. Um, but he himself actually spent very little time in Ireland. He, he said himself that he didn't consider himself uh, an Irishman. Um, and actually, although they were given, in the 1600s, the family was given a tremendous amount of land, that was gradually, gradually all sold off. And, um, and the last small piece was sold off um, uh, when Cavan was quite young, I believe. So, in that sense, he didn't have a direct personal relationship with, uh, the place of, cavern He was actually brought up in, um, um, Wheathamstead in Hertfordshire. And, and he, anymore, he, he said, he didn't say he was a man from Cavan. He said he was a man from Hertfordshire. And, and it was in, uh, Wheathamstead house that, um, his family, uh, lived for many years and which he found, um, it was a great home he really enjoyed being there he went to school in fact uh pri- private first school down in the west country where his father was based at the time um but then uh, and perhaps i'll come to this in another question but then he he went off to Eton. so although he's got the title cabin um he didn't really feel he was Irish in that extent.
0: So Field Marshal Lord Cavan was a commander who invoked diverse opinions amongst his contemporaries. Can you shed some light on this dynamic where some senior soldiers held disdain for him while others praised his leadership and calm demeanour? How do these conflicting perceptions contribute to our understanding of Lord Cavan's character?
1: Well, yeah, you're quite right. Um, Cavan did receive some uh, negative as well as positive comments. but. As I was collecting information about his military career, it struck me that um, the negative comments were not directed um mainly at Kavan's ability as a military commander. They were more personal attacks uh, or differences of opinion, and, and they often were were unexplained attacks. For example, well, Edmonds, the official historian, he allegedly described Kavan as bone from the neck upwards. Um Charles Carrington said that Cavan's great heart doesn't love the good red blood above his waist, um, and so on. But interestingly, the most negative comment uh, came from his brother-in-law, Cuthbert Heedlin, who was later to write a history of the Guards Division. Now, Heedlin wrote to his wife that Cavan was a moral coward with a black streak running through him, that he was a mean, second-rate worm and occur with no moral guts. It's all a bit extreme. Now, why exactly Hedlund wrote these highly derogatory remarks, try as I might, um, the, the family doesn't seem to know, I wasn't able to find out. I mean, perhaps they were just uh, family issues. Who knows? But what is interesting about them is that Heedlam, who was Cavan's, uh, with Cavan, who was in in 1915 and 1916, also wrote, Cavan is charming and I like being with him, He's a first class soldier, a born leader, uh, and much more in the same vein. So it's all, it's all very curious, really. What, when it comes to Cavan's ability as a soldier and a commander, there is, uh, I found consistent praise, and it comes from all quarters, from his superiors, his immediate colleagues, and from the soldiers that he commanded. I had no difficulty in coming across examples of this consistent praise. During, for example, during 1st Eve in 1914, one of Cavan's subalterns wrote that Cavan's mere presence seemed equivalent to a brigade. In 1915, Cavan took over the 50th Division and a member of his staff said that he was simply A1. The whole show runs like a well-oiled machine. Now, I could quote a lot more highly positive comments. And French, the leader of the BEF in 1914 and 15 said that Cavan was a marvellous influence. General Horn considered Cavan to be a most excellent commander. Um, and when Cavan was in Italy in 1917-18, the Italian commander-in-chief he has, um, described him as an illustrious leader. One contemporary in fact said that Cavan hardly put a foot wrong throughout the war. Now, uh, as you will know, Tom, such high and consistent praise was not usual for First World War generals, mean, uh, quite the reverse. Um, And and I found myself asking, is Cavan too good to be true? And in fact, one of the aims of the book is to assess uh, objectively whether Cavan did indeed deserve the vast amount of praise that he received. And it's been um, an interesting journey.
0: Now, your book is... Interestingly, and maybe surprisingly, the first comprehensive biography of Lord Cavan. You explore his roles during the Boer War, the First World War, and his influence post war, for instance, um, as he shrank or helped shrink the British Army after its um, huge size during the war. Now, what qualities and achievements of Lord Cavan stand out most prominently to you as you delved into his life and long career?
1: Yes. Well, one of the qualities that stands out to me. Uh, was his ability uh, as a leader and inspirer of men. Uh, the book includes many incidents that support that view. And one well-documented example uh, took place in November 1914, during First Eve. Uh, a Major General Bolfin had been severely wounded, and Cavan was ordered to take over Bolfin's command, as well as his own. Cavan arrived at Bolfin's headquarters, which was, understandably, in a state of extreme confusion, and the Germans were breaking through. Calvin had to make some serious decisions, and pretty quickly. And then, what, what the HQ staff noted was that Calvin took out a cigar, tapped it carefully on his cigar case, and carefully lit it, turning it round and round to ensure that it was evenly lit. Now, this gave Calvin the brief time to assess the situation and then he began issuing orders. Aids were sent out to move battalions, and eventually the front was secured. Um, calm was restored in the headquarters, and the cigar event went a long way to inspire his uh, officers at the time and restore their confidence. I could give another of Cabin's qualities that I would pick out was his concern for the welfare of his troops, which came from an inbuilt feeling of responsibility to save them from avoidable risks. As, as a young captain in the Boer War, Cavan lost seven of his company uh, at a place called Biddelsberg in May 1900. Now, Cavan felt that he was responsible for the loss of those men, And he wrote to his mother that he felt the incident very keenly. Cavan never lost that feeling that he was accountable for his men and he always did what he could to make their lives uh, as bearable as possible in the mud of the trenches and save lives where possible his actions ranged from organizing hot baths and warm blankets for those who had spent hours in the freezing cold to calling off an attack during the battle of Festubert in 1915 because the attack area was just thick mud covered by enemy machine guns and as a result um, he was able to save many of these soldiers lives. And the great thing is that Cavan's troops responded to this genuine concern. Um It was uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote that the Irish Guards loved Cavan because he understood their difficulty. Uh, and just before the Battle of Luce, when Cavan uh, was then in command of the Guards Division, Cavan wrote to his wife, if God gives me the wisdom to make the right decisions, I know my men will carry out those decisions. Thank God I can trust my men to fight it out. There was, um, Tom, uh, an amazing mutual respect between Cavan and his men, uh, and uh, the book gives many examples of that.
0: Now, beyond his military endeavours, your book delves into Lord Cavan's personal life and how his aristocratic background, wealth and love of fox hunting influenced his conduct in both times of peace and war. Could you share some of these insights into these aspects and how they shaped his leadership style and decision-making ability?
1: Yes, and and this is a question that helps us to to understand Cavan's character and personality. Um, Well, let's start in 1890s, when Cavan was a young subaltern serving in Ireland. He then confided to a fellow officer that he had two ambitions in life. One was to command a battalion of his regiment, and and Cavan was a a committed grenadier guardman, and the second was to be master of the Hartfordshire Hunt. By 1912, Cavan had achieved both of these ambitions. His military career and his outdoor pursuits, especially fox hunting, were his twin obsessions. Now, there's no doubt that Cavan was born with a number of silver spoons in his mouth. Uh, He was born into an aristocratic family. He went to Eton, which he loved. He then went to Sandhurst. He was commissioned in an elite regiment, Grenadiers. He spent time as an aide to the governor general in Canada. And when his father died in 1900, he became the 10th Earl of Cavern. All in all, you could say it was a promising introduction to life. Now, let's deal with his aristocratic background, which no doubt provided useful contact. But it should be remembered that the guards' regiments were full of aristocracy. Just look at an appendix in the history of the guards. I mean, Cavan was just one uh, of many in that. But what he did get from his privileged upbringing, which was strict and religiously based, was uh, self-confidence, um, a marked sense of duty—a duty to the royal family uh, whom he who knew quite personally, duty to his country, to the guards, and duty to his soldiers. Now, I mentioned Cavan's sports and outdoor activities were all were also important to him. His father introduced him to fox hunting from the age of 13. Cavan said that fox hunting stirred my blood. And he took every opportunity during the war to follow the hounds when he came back on leave. Apart from fox hunting, Cavan was uh, enthusiastic about stalking, about squash, tennis, cricket, golf. Uh, He was an all-rounder. According to his sister, Ellen, he was good at them, if not brilliant, in all of them. But well, he even won the army 120 yards race at Windsor Barracks in record time at the age of 43. It was quite amazing. Now, all these factors uh, that I have mentioned shaped Cavan as a commander. He was highly competitive. Um, he focused on winning. He was self-confident, prepared to take risk, and he was driven by duty, uh, whether to the army or to his fellow hunters. At the same time, he had common sense. And his feet were firmly planted on the ground and he could communicate at all levels um and these uh, these tom were of course good qualities for a senior army
0: commander. Which segues neatly into my next question. Now Cavan's role as a leader, uh, obviously as a corps commander and and laterally an army commander and a military administrator, undoubtedly left a lasting impact. How does your assessment of him place him among prominent soldiers of his generation? Maybe some of those aristocratic gentlemen you mentioned earlier. Could you highlight some some specific examples of of his achievements and how they showcased his abilities.
1: Yes, well, he shapes it well against soldiers of his um, generation. Um Let me uh, i think, let me give you two particular events that um, showcase his capabilities. The first is well known uh, and concerns his uh, actions at uh, the village of Le Transrat, um which uh, at the end of the Somme offensive in November 1916. Uh, Caverns 14 Coal in which he was then in charge of had fought well and had, had taken a series of villages, Comble uh, and Morval and their birth, despite terrible ground conditions and very heavy losses. And then, uh, General Haig ordered that the German held the Transva village on the next ring should be taken. And the date of the 5th of November was set. Now, Cavan discussed this order. With his staff and his division commanders. And they concluded that such an attack against the heavily defended village, which entailed an advance of a mile through thick muds and down up to the waste, could only end in disaster and horrendous losses. Cavan immediately wrote to his superior, General Rawlinson, who visited the attack area and, to his credit, agreed with Cavan's assessment. And this, in turn, was passed on to Haig, and despite some arguments with the French who wanted the attack to take place, the attack was cancelled, thus saving many lives. Now, Cavan would have been well aware that um, senior commanders had been dismissed for taking the same stance or objecting to an attack. Uh, but it was this decision that earned Cavan uh, the reputation of being one of the very few, first of all, World War generals, who successfully objected to attack orders from his superior. It was a courageous act. Um, another event that um, shows Cavanaugh's ability as a leader was his willingness to take, uh, to take a risk. Uh, now, this occurred uh, in October 1918 when Kevin was in Italy commanding the Italian 10th Army. Cavan uh, had two Italian corps in his command, but he couldn't speak Italian and the Italian corps commanders couldn't speak English. So Kevin decided not to give long written orders, which the Italians were actually used to But instead, he took the Italian generals to an especially constructed observation post erected in a high tree. The cabin simply pointed out the exact lines of advance and the timings, and he left them saying in French, uh, these are the only orders you're going to get, get moving. Well, the gamble paid off, and uh, the two Italian corps followed the correct lines and advanced uh, 57 miles, crossing five rivers. success. It's got to be said that Cavan's efforts in the final days of the war in Italy were quite remarkable, and his 10th Army spearheaded the advance on Vittorio Veneto. Now, the Italian general, the Duke of the Oster, said that Cavan to Cavan that without him and his troops there would never have been the victory in Italy.
0: Now, in addition to your impressive portfolio of works, which includes Fromelle's 1916 and The Soldiers' Peace, your latest book adds, to, um, adds, to an, uh, adds another layer to uh, an understanding of the Great War. How does the process of researching and writing these historical events shape your perspective on the First World War and its aftermath?
1: Well, that, gosh, that's a, it's a difficult question because, um, well, we have to take into account um, strategies, tactics, logistics, armaments, technical developments and so on. And not to mention, uh, relationship with allies. However, taking account of all those matters, I feel that my take on the First World War has uh, focused on the role of the individual. Um, uh, it was, uh, what certain individual contributed, uh, to the war effort made all the difference between victory and defeat. Thinking of a few British examples, um, Lord Haldane was behind the establishment of the territorial force in 1908, which played a very important part throughout the war. Um, General Sir Henry Wilson, before the war, worked without the knowledge of most of the cabinet with the French General Foch on British-French liaison should Germany We've got Lord Kitchener who stimulated the nation's recruitment campaign. And then was General A, love him or hate him. But he was a rock upon which the eventual 1918 victory was based. Individual generals played their part, not always, but always well, I suppose. Of the politicians, Lloyd George stands out. I mean, he was the man who drove industry to get the supply of uh, weapons and armaments moving for the forces. And there were some less elevated individuals who are hardly known, who made significant contributions to the war. Those who developed uh, the tank and aircraft, the advances in artillery. I mean, how many people are familiar with people who took us work on sound and flash spots? Not many, I suspect. Um I mean, you know, you ask the question. I mean, could it be that Britain played a major role in winning the First World War because, on the whole, we just simply had better individuals than the opposition.
0: Sorry, just finding the mute button there. Right, now, as we wrap up our conversation, what takeaways do you hope readers will gain from your book and how they perceive a Lord Cavan and his First World War role?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I would like to think that Cavan's biography contributes uh, to debunking the traditional condemnation of British generals in the First World War. I and mean, even today, uh, the general public's image of First World War vicious generals is that there were butchers, bunglers, and donkeys, that's what they were called, and that they lived in comforting chateau miles behind the front, and they thoughtlessly just sent thousands of troops to their deaths for no gain. Now, gradually, historians are changing that dire image, but it's slow going. Um, Cavern is a prime example, in my opinion, of a thoughtful general who not only cared for his troops, but was uh, professional and proficient enough to win major successes on the battlefield, both on the Western Front and in Italy. After the war, as Chief of Imperial General Staff, he continued to serve um, his, his soldiers his country uh, during very difficult times of economic uh, cutback. He was eventually made uh, Field Marshal, which was well-deserved. I think that Cavan was a leader that British people could and should be proud of.
0: And finally, where can people get your book from?
1: Um, it's published by Pen and Sword. Uh, you can certainly get it on Amazon, so much less than I paid for my copies, uh, or probably any any reasonably good bookshop. I think it's uh, it's widely advertised, and if uh, if they get it out, they enjoy it. Thank you very much,
0: Michael. Thank you very much for your time. Bye for
1: now. Bye bye.